I'm Emily Williams, and this is a special episode of Understand South Carolina, a podcast from the Post and Courier. Today's episode is the first in an occasional series, South Carolina Voices. In these episodes, you'll hear conversational interviews from people with uniquely South Carolina stories to tell. So we're starting with two true storytellers, Natalie and Ron Days. Or as they would describe it, Natalie is a storyteller and Ron is a kind of keeper of stories, collecting and documenting. Together, they've been gathering, interpreting, and sharing stories in South Carolina for decades. The couple is best known for Gullah Gullah Island, a children's television series that aired on Nickelodeon in the 90s. Their storytelling extended well after that show ended, though. It's never stopped, really, and the ways they tell stories have continued to evolve, even during the pandemic. Co-host Gavin McIntyre and I spoke with them about why they tell stories, what they see as their role in their communities now, and the serendipitous way that their TV show came to be. I'm Natalie Days. I'm Ron Days. Oh, and we're married. <laughs> Ron is from the Low Country. He grew up on St. Helena Island. Natalie grew up in upstate New York. She moved to South Carolina when she was 22. I was reading a children's book, Scott O'Dell's Blue Dolphins on the bus. So I was like really just expecting to see dolphins. I also was nervous because I was going down below the Mason-Dixon line by myself. While I am, you know, very much this is my home at the time, I was a little nervous. I don't know. I felt like maybe the Klan hung out on the Mason-Dixon line. And largely because, you know, like my parents and whatnot, they had left the South. And I figured they obviously had good reason. And yet they sent me South. So there was that anxiety and that anticipation. It was April, April 14th, and everything was blooming. And in upstate New York, it was not like that. It was blooming, and I was like in awe of all the gorgeous, the beauty of it. Also, though, within the first week or so, also a sense that I was home. You know, a mixture. I, I had been walking around downtown Beaufort, and I was through the historic district, and I kept feeling like I was being watched. And then, but it felt like it wasn't people, if that makes sense. There was just this sense of almost like, oh, so about time you got here, which didn't make a lot of sense to me at all, because I was much less of a spiritual, I should say, person than I am now. And yet there was this very much a sense of I'm being watched by something or someone who is glad I'm here. Ron, you're from South Carolina and specifically St. Helena Island. What are some of your fondest memories of growing up there? Or is there a specific memory that comes to mind when you, you think about growing up? I loved being a product of St. Helena Island. I loved just the recollections of both of my parents were graduates of Penn School. One of the things that Natalie said that she enjoyed about me after we met was my sense of rootedness because I lived on a land where my parents lived, my grandparents lived, my great-grandparents had lived. There was a sense of us-ness about, about this place. It was very rural and one of the, uh, the, the sensibilities that I had throughout school, as many others, is that once we graduated, we were going to go away because there were more opportunities elsewhere. And I did go away for four years. I went to Hampton 
Institute, now Hampton University in Virginia, and I returned home after graduation, not intending to stay there very long, but my first job was as a newspaper reporter at the Beaufort Gazette. I was the first African-American reporter at the Beaufort Gazette. I always knew I did not wish to be a newspaper reporter, but I enjoyed writing feature stories, and it was during my tenure that there were, it was like the first time there were positive stories about Black members of the, uh, of the Beaufort community that appeared on the front page of the Beaufort Gazette. Once I left the Beaufort Gazette, I continued writing um, stories about people whom I had grown up under. Those stories became the core of my first book, Reminiscences of Sea Island Heritage. And when Natalie and I had met, I was working on that manuscript. I had shown this manuscript to Natalie, and Natalie held on to it. <laughs> she did not return. Every time I would ask, well, are you finished? with?" No, oh, not yet, she said. Not yet. Well, he's going to have to keep coming back to get the book, right? <laughs> so I held on to the book for a little bit. Was storytelling something you were both drawn to in college, or did it kind of like naturally just kind of arise, you know, through life? I don't call myself a storyteller, though I tell stories. And the writing that I did or do tells stories. But I, I, I would not identify myself as a storyteller. I majored in mass media arts with an emphasis emphasis on print journalism. So I would write these stories that I would try to use different techniques to make those factual stories more relatable to people. That's how I would say that I'm a storyteller. Now, others would say otherwise. Natural storytellers, as I would more readily identify my wife, they just make up stories. They just tell stuff off, on the cuff. Boop, 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 boop. I don't do that. I don't know if that's definitely the definition of every, but I am very much a natural storyteller. I've always been a storyteller. But I didn't know I was one. I grew up in a very fundamentalist religion, and you know, any storytelling had to do with religious position. You know, so I thought, certainly in my early teens, that maybe I was going to be a, a minister because that was the only place where. I saw or felt that kind of drive I had. Um, I didn't know I was a storyteller until I met Ron. He had been doing book readings from his first book that he'd mentioned. And, and I, at one point, he said, wouldn't it be cool? Because we were singing together already. Wouldn't it be cool if we could be like Ozzie Davis and um, Ruby D? And so then he scripted his book and he's like, here, do this part. And so there were oral histories. We were telling some of the oral histories he had written. And then he said, you should learn the people who fly. And I did, and it was amazing. And I have said this before, I say it continually. I stepped onto the stage as a storyteller and fully stepped into myself. Oh, this is it, this is it, this is it. So yeah, I'm a storyteller, I've always been a storyteller. And it was just very affirming to you know name myself that. I realize I've always been documenting stories, the stories of others. I was the, the story keeper in the family, which resonates with me, the story keeper, yeah. more so than the storyteller. But I do tell the story through, through my writings. 
Ron then, because he's just this guy, he's just, I don't know how to explain what kind of guy Ron is. He decided <laughs> to take the whole book and, and just turn it into a performance. No one asked him to do it. And then it was like, so here, hey, look, I've scripted this book. This is your part. This is my part. And we would like, he said, let's go through it. And we would go through it in the house, right? No one had asked us to do it. And then Emery Campbell, who was at the time the um, executive director of Penn Center, called Ron because he used to do a lot of community theater and stuff. And he said, uh, I've got this, this conference of museum directors and curators out here at Penn Center for a conference. Thursday night, I don't have anything for them to do. Can you think of something you could do for them? But we had this thing. So Thursday, we got there and we stood up in front of this audience full of museum directors, curators. About 50. And we read it. And then when we got to the songs, we sang them. And then we finished and they gave us a standing ovation. You're like, oh. And then they began to call us. And it's funny. Um, this is my husband. I think I'm going to write a book. And then he writes a book. I think I will write a play. And then he writes a play. Mostly, I think I'm going to write a book, folks say. And then they think about it. And you say to them, how's it going? You know, I'm going to write that book. How's it going? Well, you know, I'm working on it. With Ron, he says, I'm going to write a book. And then next time you see, he says, so here's the book. Because that's who he is. So it so happened he had done it. So when, it, when the call came forward, it was something there. And we would bring life to the stage. And we could, we could see it spark in members of the audience. And our performance just naturally changed over time with an awareness of how to read an audience and what interested them, what made them laugh, what made them catch their breath and wonder what we were going to say or say next. And also the responses of people after the performances so we would go back and we would re regroup. And little by little, it became a dynamic performance. You're constantly tweaking. And some of the tweaking is not really conscious. Mm -hmm. You know, you feel, you feel a room. You alter. For example, um, Ron would do a story in Gullah, um, the biblical story of the Exodus as a minister. And sometimes he would do it and everyone laughed. And sometimes they didn't. He discovered that if he sat down... They did not. What was the difference of the dynamic of the energy of the sitting down to deliver it versus standing up to deliver it? We don't know. But they could hear it differently. And then what would happen when he would do the story of the Exodus? If there were Gullah speakers in the audience, it was like it was church. Yes, amen. If there were folk who weren't Gullah speakers, they were like fascinated. Oh, wow, what was that? It changed. And, and I would say that we, as performing artists, we grew ourselves up into this so that um, by the time we ended up on television, we had actually been doing this work full time from 87 until 93, 94. Right. Yeah. All of it was educational. We had to put everything in context. Let's say we're sharing an oral history, but we're going to place it in context. Ron, you said edutainment. So when you left, you knew something that you did not know, and that was intentional. And, and I think we're both still very intentionally educational in just about everything we do. It's really important to never to present Gullah Geechee culture as a historic piece, as a museum right. piece, because we did not want to say Gullah Geechee culture is this remnant of slavery. While slavery was the, 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 the container in which 
we were evolving when we got here, we were evolving. We brought something with us. We continued to grow and, and, and change within that institution. And when it was over, we continued to grow and change. And so it's very important to us that, you know, lots of times Gullah Geechee said that you somehow think, you know, well, you know, like it began and ended somewhere around 18. No, no. That was very important to us as performers. We were very intentional about that. Ron and Natalie share how they went from telling stories on the stage to telling stories on television right after this quick message. Hi, I'm Ricky Siafa Dennis Jr., a local government and faith reporter for the Post and Courier newspaper. As journalists, we spend time researching information and talking to credible sources to compile a story that's honest and accurate. We try to include important information that you can use in your own life, and it's worth your while to pay for a subscription to support our work. Learn more at postandcurrier.com slash subscribe. Our connection with Nickelodeon came through an independent production company Novelist Gloria Naylor, after having um, written and published Mama Day, which was about a fictional Gullah community, bought a home on St. Helena Island. And soon after, we became friends. Uh, Mama Day was being optioned for a Disney movie that Lawrence Fishburne was to star in and direct. And Gloria Naylor had Lawrence Fishburne and the woman who was to be the executive producer of the Disney movie, they visited St. Helena Island to scout sites for the movie. And we were invited to a dinner at the concluding night of the weekend visit. And that's when the woman who was to be the executive director of the movie, they, it was a discussion going on about children's TV. We had a, a three-year-old and we were expecting our second. And the conversation was, what did we like about children's TV? And we informed them. One of the things that we said during the conversation, we were interested in children's programming for which our daughter, Sarah, would not watch and immediately afterwards wish to have blue eyes and blonde hair. Maria Perez, who was to have been the executive producer, said that she and her partner, business partner in New York, were working on a children's program idea that they planned to pitch to Nick Jr., who was looking for multicultural programming. Uh, she's from Puerto Rico, and I think the initial idea was to have been about Puerto Rico, but she said on the fly, maybe it could be about this magical sea island, because that was her first time visiting a Gullah community. And then the question, would you be interested? We were just there for the dinner conversation. Yeah. But our friend Gloria, Gloria Naylor said, you know, Ron and Natalie, they do all kinds of stuff. So when she asked if we'd be interested, we were like, yeah, sure. Because yeah, we didn't, didn't believe think, her. We didn't think much would come out of it. Because, <laughs> you know, folk are always like, you should be on Broadway. You should have. You'd be like, yeah, okay. And never hear from them again. Right. So... <laughs> We got a call from her and her partner, Kathy Minton, in um, like March right. of the next year. 
And they were like, you want to come to New York? We've been talking about you. And by then I was like almost nine months pregnant. I was like, no. Mm-hmm. So she and her partners, two partners at the time, flew into Charleston and they came to Beaufort for a day. And filmed us. And just followed us around. We went to a local elementary school, had some school children and told some stories. And we sang, sang with them songs. and I was like huge. <laughs> and then they took the, the stuff back up to New York. We get another call. Um, they really want you to come. Can you come? Simeon was five weeks old, nursing. Flew, much to the horror of many of our elders, you don't take no babies out in the world at five weeks old. Flew to New York because he's a nursing baby. We meet with these folk in Nickelodeon in, in this meeting. There was one of the executive vice presidents of yes. Nick, and she said, let me, hold. let me hold the baby. And she took Simeon, and he threw up all over the suit, which probably cost more than my car. <laughs> <laughs> we had a show by the end of the day, and it was actually on the air a year later, and that never happened. By the time Simeon was five months old, we shot the pilot for the show, went into series, and November 94, it was on the air. From what I know about TV now, that was warp speed. That was warp speed, and what we found subsequently from the casting agents, they would not have selected us, but it was a show about us. About who we were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If we'd gone, if we'd had like agents and we'd had, you know, people out there trying to pitch a show, who would have picked it up? But the fact that we were just sitting there eating cold bucket chicken one night on <laughs> St. Helena Island, and then they followed us around. And we introduced them to members of our community and told them these are different tenets of this culture. And they reflected that, particularly in the Scenes that were filmed in Beaufort. Which is our real community, which is our real neighbors, our real friends, our real high school band. There's real next door neighbor, a real park ranger. As the viewers of Gullah Gullah Island know that we would just burst out in song about something, about anything. And, and that's what we did anyway. We would sing all the time. We burst in the song all the time. In our real life, this was old days. We would sing songs into cassettes. Send the cassette to the folk in New York where they'd give it to their songwriters to, you know, change the words, change it a little bit, make it so we could sing it with little kids. Um, But they were based on the old traditional songs that we had been doing. The head writer, the first head writer, who I love dearly to this day, Frack as well, Hyman, he had spent that week hanging out with us. And I have been greeting people as, hey there, since forever. Hey there, it's just what I say. He said, oh, we'll keep it. I'm like, well, good, because that's what I say. Mm -hmm. And what he said was... We know you're not TV actors. Don't worry about it. You just be yourself and we'll work around you. And that's what they did, which was like, <sighs> we didn't have to be somebody else. I mean, sure, you know, there's, there's a, as Franz says, the performance element, but we sort of just got to be ourselves. How was it to see yourselves in the community on the show, you know, telling, telling about yourselves and like the people around you? And what was, you know, the reception from the community seeing themselves? All the community loved seeing themselves. Yes. They did. They did. And I still meet people like, I was in episode X. (laughs) You know, they loved it. They loved it. And we loved that part. Now, seeing myself, I probably didn't watch the show for the first year. (laughs) Two two or three years. (laughs) No, not that long. (laughs) Yes, you did. And one of the wonderful, wonderful, long-lasting impacts of that. You know, like Ron mentioned, when we first started performing, sometimes folk were, why are you doing this? Are you making fun of us? A lot of people who still wouldn't hold hold the title, claim the name, that you people coming up, I'm Gullah, I'm Gullah, mm-hmm. me too, I'm Gullah. 
And that was really just a wonderful, wonderful thing to have been a part of the embrace of who we are. And I, I do believe that it had a, it had a positive impact on, on just self-concept. Forget necessarily how it was in the whole world, but in self-concept and that sense of this is who we are, this is where we're from. Yeah, but it had an international broadcast. Yeah, it did. And the popularity of the, the series as well as of the theme song. Many people who had not heard the term Gullah before or who had heard the term, but um, for them it may have had these negative overtures, began more or less, as Natalie said, to embrace it or try to find out more about it. How do you think the, I guess, awareness, but also understanding of Gullah culture has changed maybe during the the, the span of the show, but to today to 2021 from when you started? Most obviously is that that so very many people identify and embrace it. A lot of younger people who are redefining what it means to be Gullah. I mean, you know, initially there was a lot of tie to a Gullah as being a part of an agricultural community, but it's more than that. A lot of them reconnecting to the land, embracing the evolution of the language and, 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 and not just embracing it, driving the evolution of the language. I love that. There's a Akua Page and Chris out there in Charleston doing amazing work around language. And so the, the idea that Gullah language was a dead language, which was actually, I remember reading a book, the Gullah, the Gullah language, which was dead, <laughs> you know, you know, it's like, I mean, even then, I mean, I read that book in like 1980, you know, 80 five or six. And I'm like, what? They must not go to the Piggly Wiggly because if they did, they would know that <laughs> it is alive and well. In terms of embrace, how claiming, I mean, the fact is whether you speak Gullah or not, if you're Gullah, you're still Gullah, even if you don't choose that as your first language. You're still Gullah if you don't work on a rice in a rice field. You're still Gullah. And how do we define that? And they are defining it for themselves by virtue of heritage, history, and practice. And so, and I'm learning from them because now we're the old folk, and I'm learning from them. The idea that it is a culture that is dead or is dying is, is ludicrous. We're still here. What's the work that each of you finds the most fulfilling right now? What's the work right now that really gives you that, that sense of fulfillment? I am a storyteller. That's just who I am. That is, if, if, you, say, if, you, if you had one word. But I can't... I'm not telling in that kind of traditional way in a space with people right now. Um, and so my painting is a vehicle for that story. I've done Zoom storytelling, which is very different. See, storytelling in a space is an exchange. You know, it's not a teller and then a passive. There's an exchange going on all the time, the whole time. I may be telling and they're listening, but they're also telling me. And that's where I get, there's this amazing magical energy that happens in that exchange. But my, my painting speaks in a different part of, of, of telling a story. How I take in information and synthesize it into a visual art piece. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in the process of it happening. And I'm interested in what happens once I share it. Story is at the center of absolutely everything I do. And so that has not changed. What I find fascinating at this point is... Again, it deals with 
storytelling, but not as performance, because the writings that I have been doing recently are fictional, as opposed to factual, and I'm using this factual information that I knew or am, am learning about, and there are these voices of all these different characters. What will they say? Why will they say it? What will they be doing? What, well, what are they wearing? And I find that quite intriguing. In this, this novel that I'm working on, I am hopeful to show the significance of Georgetown County to Gullah Geechee heritage. I hope to bring out the importance of these numerous rice plantations of Georgetown, over a hundred, where there are Africans from each of the areas of West Africa who were placed here. And whereas even to this day, uh, there are not many who would self-identify as Gullah or Geechee, that this is an important part of their and our heritage. That's what I hope. Being elders now, what does that mean to you? How does it feel, you know, taking something that you saw, you know, in your parents and grandparents playing that role now? I mean, look, it's just a natural evolution of life, you know. My daughter says to me, there should be ceremonies for this. You know, this passage, for me, it's simply a recognition of it. And, and actually, the recognition came from others. It came from those who came to me, sort of like Mom and Natalie, Auntie Natalie. And it's like, oh, oh, I see. I see. That's my role in your life now. That is my role. And yet, the eternal part of me is continually looking forward and creating. It's not doing that any less than it was 20, 30, 40, oh my God, years ago. I am as excited about what's next as I was when I was 18. I recognize that I may have less time ahead of me. I might not though, y'all. Y'all don't know, y'all might be coming back. So Natalie, at 120, what do you think about? What I think of as my, gosh, legacy is I will tell to whoever will hear. I will do it as, as a mentor, as an auntie, mama, and as an artist. And they are all the one thing now. And sometimes you're just listening to my children and they will say something that sounds just like me. <laughs> or I watch and they will do something. Oh, you know, I passed this on. Um, or uh, when watching High on the Hog, the Netflix documentary. Which was amazing. Yeah, and particularly, I think it was the second episode when they featured Gullah communities, South Carolina, Georgia, and North Carolina. And I watched, and each, there were so many individuals. You know, I had them to come to Brooklyn. They have been to Brooklyn Gardens. And had I not been in that position that I'm in, um, who was, no, if they would influ have influenced uh, the audiences 
Brooklyn Gardens sees about 300,000 people per year. And it just felt good that I was able to help facilitate that. And I continue to do that. And I will say regarding Brook Green Gardens, you know, when the Ron's charge when he got there was to, this is four rice plantations. And there really was very little recognition that Brook Green Gardens was built on four rice plantations. Now you cannot go through Brook Green Gardens without seeing permanent exhibit gardens and things which say, this is who cleared this land. This is who, you know, we belong here. And, um, you know, so whenever he retires, <laughs> That will still be there. My office window overlooks the main rice field at Brooklyn Gardens. And there are these aged oaks along the Low Country Trail. And one thing I recall that when I started, because I would hear these ancestral voices, and they would say, oh, you know, I glad I want to come. Tell the wall about me. So that's what I've done. That's interesting. You talk about those voices because I mean, like I felt that same same <laughs> sense when I moved to South Carolina. He didn't say I'm glad on a come because I wouldn't have understood him. But at the time, <laughs> but um, it was very much, you know, it's very much a sense as elders. We are absolutely, without a doubt, sure that we are absolutely walking in the purpose. Absolutely, we aren't in any place like I wonder what my life is for. Nope, we know. All right, listeners, that's all for today. We plan to bring you more interviews like these, but we want to know who you want to hear from. Let us know. It could be a politician, an educator, a business owner, an artist, a writer, anyone with a story that has something about it that's uniquely South Carolina. Let us know who comes to mind, and that might end up being the next South Carolina Voices episode in your feed. As always, if you have comments, questions, or suggestions, Email us at understandsc at postingcourier.com or you can tweet us at understandsc. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Posting Courier. Our intro music is by Billy Fountain. You can find his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a review on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postingcourier.com.